At this time, we're going to have a question and answer um, panel. And if the panel would like to come up here. Basically, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through some of the questions that were submitted at previous meetings. Um, Doug Batchelor did not have time to answer all of them. And so we will be trying to answer as many as we can this morning. Now, just something I want you guys to realize. The panel does not know what the questions are. And so have mercy on them. They, they're they going to do an amazing job, but they don't know what the questions are. So let's uh, see what we can do. Um, first, if I could just have each of you introduce yourselves, your name, where you're from, what you do, that kind of stuff. My name is Michael Hosel. I teach here in the School of Religion at Southern Adventist University, and um, I'm a co-faculty sponsor of GYC Southeast, also serve on the board of directors of GYC, and love this movement and love young people. Amen. My name is Taylor Hinkle, and I'm a pastor in Michigan, currently serving at Great Lakes Academy as chaplain Bible teacher. I also serve as the general vice president for GYC and work with Dr. Hazel on the board of GYC. My name is Dee Casper. I work with Unseen Media Group, and our burden is to equip young people to reach young people through media and personal ministry and evangelism. I'm Julie Mayer. Um, I'm from Southern California. I'm a nursing student here at Southern, and um, I love saying the Bible. Hello, my name is Kyle Griffith. I'm a student, a pre-med student at, here at Southern. I'm from Southern California, and I'm not as cool as the rest of these people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can see, we have uh, a variety of people on our panel this morning, um, both students, faculty, uh, pastors, whatnot. So the first question that I'm going to ask this morning is, uh, was sent in last night. It says, after an altar call, how do I prevent myself from losing the conviction that brought me to respond to the call? So in other words, you know, we feel a lot of like, umph, as it were, when there's an altar call, we want to f give our lives to Christ, but often we find that that dwindles over time. How do we prevent that from happening? How do we stay on fire? I remember standing for many appeals, and one of the most vivid altar calls in my life was a group of friends and I were at a week of prayer, and at the end, all of our friends went up for the appeal, and my friends were drug users and drug dealers and things of, at, at that time. And I remember seeing them go forward and they're crying. And I thought, man, praise the Lord, something's actually going to happen. And I remember after that time, we were walking out into the parking lot and my friend said, hey, do you want to smoke the joint now or later? And it, it was really confusing to me. Like, wait, we just stood for an appeal. How do you actually go back to just a life of sin after this? <laughs> but I, I think the question is pointing out the problem that that's the reality for most people. Is that usually when you stand for an appeal, it, it, what, what happens after that? Um, there's two things that I think make a large difference. Number one is, why did you make that decision in the first place? It was usually because of an increased amount of time in the Word of God. The preacher was preaching from the Word of God, and as you're hearing the Word of God spoken, you're inspired. And as you're, you're praying at the time of commitment, you realize this is what's going to keep you. So if you want to continue a decision that's spiritual, why don't you keep doing the things that led you to that decision, like reading the Bible, praying, and sharing your faith. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about. If you have your Bibles in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is talking to a group of people who made a decision at his altar call. 
And then he left, and he was not able to be with them anymore, and he hears that they start in selfishness and all of these things. And you can look throughout that this church has started to become disrupted with this unity. But if you notice, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is Paul focusing on Jesus and what Jesus has done for them and Jesus' sacrifice for them. And immediately in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, in other words, Because of what Jesus has done for you, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, I want you to understand something. Your obedience is not based upon the preacher being there or being at the week of prayer that led you to the decision or the GYC event or whatever it might be, but it's the therefore that it's based upon, and that's Jesus and the sacrifice that he's made for you. And unless we're daily thinking about that, our decisions are like ropes of sand and will easily erode away. And I think when we recognize that and we take personal responsibility that Dr. Hazel or any other person can't save me, but only Jesus can save me, and then I need to work out my own salvation, and I'm not talking about legalism here, but just taking responsibility. And then he gives us hope in verse 13 for those who are discouraged after that message. He says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, no one can save you except the choice that you make yourself. I mean, Jesus saves you. Don't, don't get confused. But no one can cause you to come into a saving relationship unless you make that decision. But it's God who's going to empower you to do that. Amen. Some of the best advice I got was from Taj Pakleb at ASI this year. I said, you know, I'm going through this process of, like, more people knowing who I am. It kind of freaks me out. What's your advice? And... He told me the story of the man in John chapter 5. He didn't answer my question. He told me a story which answered my question, which is relevant to this. He says, when Jesus comes up to the man in John chapter 5, he asks him, do you want to be made well? And then he gives him a command. He says, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And he says, two of those things make sense to me. One of them doesn't. Rising makes sense. Walking makes sense. But what's with the mat? Like the mat is just this reminder of 38 years of rejection, abandonment, of, of just loss, of failure, everything you can imagine. And he says, why does he tell him to take the mat? But that's precisely the point. It's a reminder of where he was. And he says, what Jesus is basically telling this man is to not forget where he came from. That not only is he restoring him, but he's also giving him the charge to not remember what you've left And I think when you make a decision at the altar, what you're really saying is, I want something better than I currently have. And one of the ways in which you can keep from backsliding from that decision is continually reminding yourself of what it is that God has delivered you from and what he's called you to. And so I would recommend, first of all, that you document your decision. This was actually mentioned at GYC. Jason Sliger mentioned this. Write that in your Bible. I made this decision on this date, and why? Write it in that moment. And remind yourself continually where you came from and where you're going. Amen. You know, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul reminds us to forget those things which are behind. But at the same time, if you look at the life of Paul, he did not completely forget where he had come from. He talks about the fact that he used to persecute Christians. He used to do all these terrible things. And so his focus was not on his past, but there was a realization that God brought me from there to here. And from that, he could find hope. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Casper. Um, Anyone else? I would just say don't give up. 
I know I've already <laughs> spoken long to this, but it, it's just a burden on my heart because of the multiple decisions that I made and the struggles that I had with sin. It's often discouraging when you realize that you're falling after you've made this commitment. Mm-hmm. But I would say that Jesus is faithful. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 talks about that oh. Jesus will Amen. finish the work that he starts in you. In other words, the only reason you responded to that appeal is because the Holy Spirit got through to your heart and you stood up. It wasn't a selfish motivation type of thing. And, you know, you might question your motives later. But really the reality is that Jesus was the one causing you to make that decision. And if he led you to make that decision whenever it was, then he's going to be faithful to carry it out and complete that work in your life. And so don't give up. Pursue God as much as you are pursuing the world before that decision. And I believe that as we spend time in the Word of God and as we spend time in prayer, the Lord is going to do amazing things that we wouldn't even have imagined. Amen. You know, the the story of the disciples always brought courage to me because they had spent three years with Jesus. And then when Jesus went to be crucified, you know, Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. They failed to do so. They fell and failed miserably. But did Jesus reject them? No. He... He said, meet me in Galilee. And so I think that's, that's so encouraging. Don't give up. We will make mistakes. We will fall, but continue pressing on toward the prize. Okay, our next question is uh, more of a question that deals with theodicy, I guess you could say. Um, the, the questioner said, I'm a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist, but I'm struggling with the question of why does God allow his faithful people to suffer for example, I have a relative who is struggling with Alzheimer's. God has the power to heal them. Why doesn't he? Why does he remove his love? So we see a person here who's, who's really struggling with how is God loving in this situation? How is God permitting this terrible thing to come upon my family member who is faithful to him? You know, I've been faithful to God. What is this all about? That's always the big questions that we wrestle with, and suffering is such a huge part of our lives because we live in a sinful world. I'm just going to tell a personal story and how God helped me through this personal story, and um, there are many passages we can go to. You, you find throughout Scripture there is no one almost in Scripture that hasn't gone through terrible suffering. Um, from Joseph, who nothing negative is said about, but is thrown into a dungeon and is, and is in a dungeon for, for a long time before God lifts him out of that and puts him in the place that he's prepared him for. I remember um, I grew up, some of you have read the book A Thousand Shall Fall, so you've, you've read some of the stories of my family and what they went through and how they were delivered again and again miraculously during World War II, both, both my mother's, uh, my grandmother's uh, side of, you know, when they were back in, in Frankfurt and my grandfather who was on the front lines in Russia. And growing up with those stories, I grow, grew up with a sense, a very strong sense of God's deliverance and how he could deliver his people. I heard those stories from my father. I heard them from my uncles and aunts. I heard them from my grandparents. And they always gave me a sense of, of, of security and knowing that God is with us no matter what we go through. Terrible, terrible times. And yet I still remember one time... Um, one time. My sister had just gotten married. We were all at home in Berrien Springs. I was in the middle of doctoral studies in Arizona, but was back at home for a couple of weeks for that wedding. I had taken my father to the airport that morning to uh, deliver a paper on creation, 
in Utah, a general conference committee that he was going to. My dad was a theologian and a, a, a pastor. And that afternoon, as we were opening up presents, my sister had come back from her honeymoon, and as we were opening up presents, a, a police car drove into the, to the, to the house. Um, and I went down to answer the door. He asked if my mother was here. I brought her down. Uh, the first thing I thought was I had gone to the airport twice that morning, and, and I had been speeding because I was late <laughs> to pick up my sister from the airport. I thought somebody had reported me, and they were coming back, you know, to get me my ticket, what I deserved, you know. I wish it had been that. Um, but the officer shared with us that my father had just been killed in a car accident in Utah. And that was probably the biggest shock, the biggest situation that I had ever faced in my life. I was 24 years old, yeah, 25 years old, been married for two years. Um, my sister, my youngest sister, had just been married off by my dad. Um, and so, and he was coming home the next day. The last thing I heard my dad say was, see you tomorrow, because I was going to pick him up at the airport the next day after he delivered his paper. That, that experience was a, 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 a horrific experience for our family to go through, and yet I remember flying back one day from Arizona for a second memorial service that the seminary at Andrews University was going to have for the students because it happened during the summer. None of the students were around, and they wanted the students to be present. My dad had been the dean of the seminary for many years and was a professor there at Andrews for, for over 20 years. And so as I was flying back um, across the country, 31,000 feet, I was, I, was, I was flying over this really, really, really kind of flat state. I don't know which one it was. It was like, I don't know, Nevada, not Nevada, but Oklahoma or some really flat state that doesn't have any hills. And, um, and it was a crystal clear day. And I remember sitting, I had got, I, my dad had a lot of upgrade certificates. So I was sitting in first class at the window. I was looking down over the fields and I was like, what am I going to share? Because I was going to share at the memorial service. What am I going to share with the people there personally about my dad? And and the question kept going through my mind at that point, why? Why at this time? Why at the peak of his career? Why at this point in time? God could have stopped that other car. God could have stopped my dad from pulling out into the intersection. Um, a lot of things could have happened. And then I looked down, and I was praying. I looked down, and I saw this road just go off into the horizon like forever. And... Um, and that road just continued off into the horizon I mean, to the point where I couldn't see it anymore, even from my vantage point. And it suddenly struck me that we serve a God who, even though we live in a world of sin, knows all things, knows our path, knows our journey, and knows what is coming around the corner even before we do, and is able from his perspective to, to have that knowledge and, and be with us during those moments. And not only that, but he sent his own son to suffer and die for me and have the experience, the experiences that we have. His best friend, Lazarus, died. You know, to have the experiences that we have so that he can fully understand what we go through every day here in this sin, sinful world. And that was such a, a moment of comfort that just swept through my, my heart as I looked down, I realized, you know, from God's perspective, I don't have his perspective. I'm just down here. I don't know what's around the next corner. I don't know what's around the next mountain. But I serve a God who does. And even though I may not have all the answers, I can trust him because he knows. And 
I never forget one year we were here at, at Southern and I was giving a golf cart ride to, to uh, Elder Falkenberg, who was at that time GC president. And he mentioned my father and, and the passing and, and what, a, what a travesty that was. And he says, you know, Michael, we don't know the answers today, but that's what the thousand years are for, where we can sit at the feet of Jesus and look over the lives of others and see those things. So to me, to me, God is in control. And while we may not understand all the hardships that we go through, ultimately, he is in control, and he helps us through those difficulties. Amen. Anyone else? I think in light of that, you know, it's just also, you know, the question says, why would God allow this? I think it's just helpful to remember that God never wanted it. Just because God allows someone something to happen doesn't mean he wanted it. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 whenever you're struggling with why is God allowing bad things. And remember what God's ideal really was for this world. No pain, no suffering, no sickness, no heartache, no disease. No. And so why does it happen? Jesus says it very clearly. An enemy has done this. He doesn't take any responsibility for it as though God just had a hiccup and forgot about you know, your own personal well-being. And God relates so much to our suffering. You know, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned through the things that he suffered. And the question was saying, how could God allow someone so, you know, righteous or upstanding to suffer? But there's no one more righteous than Jesus. And Jesus went through the most ultimate suffering that I can imagine. Not just physical suffering, but emotional suffering and spiritual agony. But yet God was allowing him to go through that to teach us lessons, for him to learn lessons. And sometimes God allows suffering, like Romans 8 verse 28 says, all things work together for good. He allows it to actually be a blessing to us, just like Dr. Hazel had mentioned Joseph. What Joseph's brothers had intended for evil, God used for good. And I think God can do that with any situation in our lives. We don't have God's vantage point. God never wanted it, but he can use it to end up being our blessings. Amen. Go ahead. I'm reminded of a quote regarding the situation of John the Baptist. If you haven't read that chapter, when you go through situations like this, I think it's chapter 25, but it's called The Death and Imprisonment of John and the Desire of Ages. There's beautiful balm from heaven there. I just want to read a brief quote from that. Not Enoch, who was translated to heaven, not Elijah, who ascended in a chariot of fire, was greater or more honored than John the Baptist, who perished alone in the dungeon. Unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. And of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. And she closes that chapter by saying that if we could see the end from the beginning, we would not choose any other way than the way in which our path leads. Um, because we would see the glory that God would bring out of the process. And anyway, it's a very, very consoling chapter in the midst of trying to make sense of difficulties like this. Amen. Uh, anyone else would like to share some thoughts? So when I think about this question, um, I'm also not actually a fourth-generation Adventist, a fifth-generation Adventist, so I kind of come from a similar background, and I've thought about the question myself. Um, when I ask this question, I realize that it's probably one of the oldest questions in the book. I've met a lot of people with this question, and I would have to say that I think that the oldest book in the Bible has the answer to the oldest question in the book, and that's the book of Job. And we realize that at the beginning of this situation, see, we as humans don't see the first part, you know? 
we don't see the conflict between God and Satan arguing over us. Why is he obeying you? Why is he um, praising you? We don't see that part. All that we see is the part where all the bad stuff starts to happen because that's where it's tangibly revealing itself on this planet. And the reality was that the question was, Job is just following you because you give him good things. And think about it. I mean, it doesn't matter if you love God or not. It doesn't matter if you love his character or not. It doesn't matter if you want to emulate him or not. If he gives you good things, you're going to follow him. I mean, that happens all over the world today. It doesn't matter. I mean, you've got people in the Middle East that are following ISIS because they give them food and clothes, you know? But does that mean that ISIS is some noble group to emulate? No, it just means that these people are getting what they tangibly need from ISIS because ISIS is handing it out to them, so then they'll follow or listen to them. So there had to be a bit of a differentiation between the following of God and the following of anybody else who can get your material needs taken care of. And the question was, Satan was saying, he's only following you because you give him stuff. And then God says, no, he's so in love with me and with my character and with my way and with my purpose for his life that no matter what happens to him, he's going to be faithful to me. And so then, of course, everything in the book of Job went down. And at the end, Satan was proven wrong because God's follower, Job, was following him not because, oh, I'm getting free stuff out of it, so I might as well just be along for the ride. He was genuinely following God because he understood his character and he understood his love and he wanted to follow him no matter what happened. And it's interesting to note that the bad stuff that happened to Job, none of it came from God. It was Satan that was specifically inflicting mm. it upon him. Mm. And it's the same way for us. It's not that somehow God is inflicting it. God will let it happen to prove a point in the great controversy. And I think that the same reason that Job went through suffering is the same reason that so many of us go through suffering is because Satan is attacking God and his character and his law and his purposes for humankind before the whole universe. And it's our privilege to help in the process of proving Satan a liar and proving God a just and loving God that he is. You know, I, I really... I really think there is a lot of truth to the fact that we are responsible for helping to vindicate, as Kyle was saying, the character of God. But even beyond that, there's a, an aspect of this that I think we often overlook, and that is the fact that God cannot and will not override free choice. We see that in the beginning. He allowed Satan to choose the way he wanted to go. He allowed Adam and Eve to choose the way that they wanted to go. And because God does not and will not and cannot override free choice, I believe many times there are circumstances and situations that occur because of your choice or because of someone else's choice that God would not allow otherwise, simply because he cannot override uh, the free choice that each, each and every one of us have. So I think it's a very good question. It's a very uh, deep question. I personally resonate with whoever asked this question, um, the reference to Alzheimer's, uh, because my grandmother actually had Alzheimer's, and she ended up wandering off into the woods about eight miles away from where we lived, and we found her body three months later. So I can completely resonate with whoever asked this question, but as was stated earlier, God does everything he can to work out the ultimate best good in this great controversy.
And I think that's, that's comforting and reassuring. Um, our next question, uh, we're going to move to a slightly different style of question. And this will hopefully include like uh, some of those who have science background. Um, what is the difference between a creationist and evolutionist? Because both are based on faith. So whoever asked this is assuming, and I think it's a fair assumption, that both worldviews, a creationist worldview and an evolutionist worldview, require a certain degree of faith. And their question is, why choose one above the other if they both require faith in something that we cannot see? I would say the first simple answer is the fact that one immediately attaches value to you and the other completely removes any value hmm. connected to you. If you're just some mistake that happened that won't matter once you're gone, that lifestyle itself awakens no intrinsic motivation to do anything of a lasting good because you don't really matter in that sense. Um, one of the most appealing things to me about the creationist worldview is the fact that there's not only a creator, but a creator that values me so highly that he not only will honor the choices that I make above what he wants, even though he obviously has more understanding than I do, but two, he was willing to come and suffer and die, as Dr. Hosel mentioned earlier, to ensure that I could be redeemed, that I wasn't just created, I was also redeemed by the same one who created me. And so I just think from a worldview of something that makes sense, that provides value, that provides purpose, you're not going to find that in an atheistic mind frame. Mm. And so that's the first answer that I would give, let alone my own experience. But comparing the two, I think values is something I don't hear mentioned enough in that topic. So I've thought about this question a lot too because um, I'm a science major. So I've dialogued with a lot of different scientists um, and you know, some are creationists, some are evolutionists. And um, just purely looking at the facts, we know that both sides readily admit that there are gaps in the theory. There, there are things we don't know. On the Christian side, God hasn't come down and physically revealed himself to us and proved that he exists. But then on the evolutionist side, there's a lot of gaps, missing links, various other quirks and issues with the theory that um, don't always add up. And that's to be expected with anything that's scientific because we don't know everything. There's always going to be spaces um, where there's stuff we don't understand. And um, that being said, what's, what's better about creation or what's better about evolution? Of course, creation maybe makes you feel more valuable, and that's, value, that's a good thing. But specifically looking at the facts, um, the reason that I came to be as strong of a believer of creation that, that I am is not so much by looking at the scientific evidence, although that's definitely part of it. There's a lot of scientific evidence in support of it. Um, more than anything, it's actually come from looking at the Bible and evidence for its validity. Hmm. Because if we accept the Bible, then we have to accept creation. Amen. There is no other option. I don't care who tells you that there is another option. Amen. If you accept the Bible, you have to accept creation. The Hebrew is very clear, as Dr. Hazel taught me in his Hebrew class. <laughs> so if we're going to accept the Bible, we have to have a good reason for doing so. Why do we accept the Bible? Well, we've got a lot of beautiful things called predictive prophecies in the Bible that are extremely accurate and extremely powerful. And they're... It's interesting that the, the basis of historical critical um, attacks on the Bible 
is that predictive prop prophecy doesn't exist because there's no God that comes and interacts with people that exist that knows the end from the beginning that can share these things. So as soon as you find that there is actually evidence for predictive prophecy, that Daniel predicted things hundreds of years before they happened, that Revelation predicted hundreds of things, uh, th well, hundreds of things, hundreds of years before they happened, um, it makes you realize there's something valid about the Bible that it, it holds up under scientific investigation. When you compare scripture with scripture, the Protestant way, um, you realize that there's something really credible about the Bible. And when you make that decision that there's something really credible about the Bible, you're led to the decision that there's something very credible about creation. And I would also include that as Adventists, the reason given for the three angels' messages is to worship God because he's the creator. Hmm. And there's multiple things over and over and over again throughout the Bible that point to the creation as God's right to be worshipped. So if we take away the creation, we're taking away God's right to be worshipped because he's nothing more than another random being off in the universe that has nothing to do with us. So I think looking at it that way, <clears throat> this is assuming that we accept the biblical paradigm based on the things we see in the Bible and the evidences we see there. Um, though both require faith, I would say that creation is by far the better choice for anyone who claims to go by the Bible, claims to be a Christian. And um, honestly, too, in the science, if you look at it, there's a lot of stuff that they don't tell you about that are holes in their theory that you'll learn the higher you get up in science. Once you go through your undergraduate, your master's degree, your doctorate, the higher you go up, the more you'll realize that nobody really knows anything, and it's mm -hmm. all subject to change. And I mean, you get that when you read scientific journals. One year, one may come out saying one thing. The next year, something says something else. They keep the textbooks relatively consistent because they don't want people to doubt them too much. But in reality, at the higher ups, things are changing all the time. So, but then from what I recall, the story of creation hasn't changed since creation. So Amen. that's kind of how I like to look at it. You know, as Kyle was saying, um, and we'll come, come to you in just a moment, but as Kyle was saying, there's a little, there's a degree of uncertainty in anything dealing with that which we cannot tangibly, you know, test and experiment upon. And so both, both require faith, but the evidence does definitely seem to support and lean towards a creationist worldview. And I really like the point that Kyle made that a biblical worldview and an evolutionist worldview are in no way compatible. Bible does not allow in any way, shape, or form for long periods of slow change by means of death and natural selection. So, very good point. Um, two things that really helped me to um, really accept the Bible as a rule of faith and um, a, part, a guide in life for me. And one thing is righteousness by faith, but also the historical backing up of the Bible and um, how God has revealed himself throughout history. And um, studying creation, I had a class when I was at Wachita Hills um, on creation and evolution. And I didn't really know much of either both of how there can be evidence for both. So studying up on each um, um, part of evolution and creationism, I came to the conclusion that, you know, when it comes to science, 
science is very relative with history. Science is very rel relative with history. Um, not relative, but like it coincides, it works together. Or history works with science. And um, look looking at um, something like evolution, how could we really look back one billion years ago without that kind of evidence? Which I'm thankful for the Bible is that it has given us some history. And can we definitely prove that the ark um, came through, that there was a worldwide flood? It's very possible because we have some kind of evidence to back it up. We can use the Bible as a hypothesis. And something that with evolutionism, we're just kind of making it up as we go. But I'm thankful for the Bible because we can use that as a, as a guide to help us to make scientific um, explanations, um, evaluations. And I, you know, we don't really have to be in darkness. And I've, and just in my studies as well, I have to agree like with Kyle that creationism is the best way to go because we have a backing up in historical evidence for that. Like you were saying, um, we can use a creationist worldview from which to study nature and to study science. A lot of people say, well, that's not objective. Well, then neither is using an evolutionary worldview. Both are, both are assumptions, and both are, uh, neither one is, is absolutely, you know, undeniably proved. But a creationist worldview has, for many years, served as a very stable platform for scientific research, and I think that's a, a great point. Anyone else? Yeah. Like to, oh, oh, really quickly, I'm so sorry. <laughs> really quickly, like, they say evolution is, if someone tells you that evolution is a fact, it is not. It's a theory it, because it's called an evolution theory. Theory is not fact. It's an ongoing process of learning. So, and just like with creation, um, people call it a theory. Well, we're still learning, too, with creation as well. So, it's a time to continue to study, to grow, and... Just as science has, you know, grown over the years, many other many people have come to an acceptance of a biblical creation um, through, you know, atheist atheism and everything else like that. Very quickly, a couple of items. Um, this is a huge question right now. I think that Christians in general, young people in general, this is this is one of the biggest issues that we wrestle with because it's, it's everywhere, it's, it's, the worldview is, is predominant, it's, it's, in, it's in media, it's in the movies uh, you watch, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, you know, you just think about the Jurassic Park series and you think about all this stuff. Um, and there's a whole multi-billion dollar push for people to believe in evolution, for people to believe in this, in this process. Um, and it's been very interesting to watch things like, you know, when the Creation Museum, multi-million dollar Creation Museum was opened up in Kentucky, just the, the media attack on that, on that museum and the Ark Encounter, you know, which is part of that now. And this next month, the Museum of the Bible is opening up in Washington, D.C. Um, on November 17. It's a $500 million museum on the Bible and the, the authenticity of the Bible. It's opening up right near the mall area where you have the National Gallery of Art and the Smithsonian and, and the Air and Space Museum and all these museums. And if you look at the media and what they're saying about that, they're just, they just can't stand that this is happening. 
where is the freedom of speech and the freedom of thought and the freedom to explore? Isn't that what science is really about? To look at all kinds of different alternative theories and to, and to look at what fits in the best way with the data that we have. And I'm a scientist, I'm an archeologist. We are all working with data, but data always needs to be interpreted. And how you interpret that data will depend largely on your worldview. Now that sounds like a very relativistic thing to say, but it's not because it also needs to be interpreted in the best light possible. And I think that you know, over the years as I've worked in archeology, span and worked as a scientist in the Middle East, the evidence that I see for the historicity of the Bible, for the fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible, is incredible. It's just incredible. And you see this again and again and again. Why are other people not convinced? Because, because maybe they don't, they don't have that, that, same, that same worldview. Maybe they're honestly fighting against something, but there have been people that have con been converted to the other side. And... I remember flying some years ago to a faith and science conference in 2003, Glacier View, and I was sitting next to Dr. Lee Spencer, who was a biologist, still is on staff here at Southern Adventist University, and uh, he was a scientist who was an evolutionist and then became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And he said, Michael, what it came down for me was this, Either what God wrote with his own finger in the fourth commandment was true, that the seventh-day Sabbath was based on a literal seven-day creation, or God is a liar, and I have to give all of that up. He says, that was what it came down to to me. And he says, as a scientist, I made a decision to follow God and his word. And he says, I have never regretted it. I have seen things through the lens of scripture as a scientist that I could never have seen before Amen. through any other lens. Amen. And this is what he said, and this is what I try to share with my students. If God exists, if he is out there, and I, we believe he is, that's why we're here worshiping on Sabbath today, but if he exists and if he is out there, why limit yourself and close your mind to a naturalistic worldview that is only based on the laws of physics and the laws of science that leaves God completely out of the purview of reality. If God really exists and is part of that reality and the Bible tells us that he acts in history, that he himself spoke life into existence on this planet, that he himself has been over the years working through his people directly and intrinsically, if that God exists and you're leaving him out of the picture, are you not closing your mind to a greater reality that scripture gives us, whether it's through Job, where we see behind the scenes of what's happening, but this gives us this great controversy perspective of a God who is active in history, and if that God exists, the evolutionary worldview excludes him completely, and then excludes a whole reality that's out there. Sometimes Christians are said, you know, you guys are closed-minded because you're focused on the Bible. No, the Bible, if it's the divinely inspired word of God, opens our minds to a greater reality mm, that includes God. And when God comes in the picture, everything, everything changes. By the way, one more plug. Two, uh, two weeks ago, I was sitting in the office at the General Conference uh, of Clifford Goldstein, the editor of our Sabbath School Quarterlies. And uh, I was in his office, I think, for an hour and a half, and we were discussing some of these issues. When you get into um, uh, 
uh, Cliff Goldstein's office, you don't get out very easily. Um, we, 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 he loves to talk and he loves to share things. And so he's just finished a book, by the way, on evolution, um, which he has worked on for three years. And it's just been published by Pacific Press. And it goes into the philosophy behind evolution. And he is convinced, and he's a, he loves studying philosophy. If you know Cliff Goldstein, he's a, he's a Jewish guy who, who, who converted to Adventism and Christianity, was a complete atheist. He's got an amazing story, but he, he loves philosophy, and he goes into the philosophical background to all of, all of this stuff, and he says, evolution is not science. Evolution is a philosophy first, in which then you plug data into. Creationism and biblical Christianity is a philosophy as well, but it's more than that. It's a theology with God at the center. And when you plug the data into that, you come up with different conclusions. So I think we have to be very, very careful, and we have to understand that this is the word of God and that we can have good faith. So by the way, he's giving a seminar at GYC in Phoenix on uh, this topic. So if you guys are there, uh, attend his, his seminar. Amen. We will ask just one more question to close, and I know our time is very short. Um, this last question is, how is it possible to stand for Christ and have a close relationship with him when no one else around me is making that same stand? So when I feel like I am the only one you know, who's making this stand, this commitment, this decision for Christ, there's no one to support me. How do I not only make that stand, but stay firm and rooted, as it were, in that stand? Something that was helpful for me, when you see the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when you see them standing on the plain of Dura, you just wonder, like, how did those guys muster the guts to all of a sudden that one day stand for Jesus? And what I came to better understand, when you read Patriarchs and Prophets and Prophets and Kings, it kind of gives some additional insight, but... It wasn't that they just all of a sudden decided to be faithful for God one day. It was their day-to-day -day decisions of fidelity that made them into a person who would stand then. Does that make sense? And so they didn't just, and neither did Daniel. They didn't just magically become someone different. They seemed to have placed a higher value on their day-to-day -day decisions maybe than we do. And that by honoring each decision you have to God, whether it be the things that you eat, right, the things that you say, the things that you think, by beginning a process of, of willfully and intentionally making decisions for Jesus one step at a time, you're building a revenue of faithful. You're building like this resume, if you will. You're building this track record, this muscle memory, these neurological pathways that train you to be someone who just knows to stand for Jesus with any decision that comes your way. Does that make sense? I would start with making your individual decisions rightly by understanding the value of your individual decisions. Um, and so when you first come to see your need of Jesus, start there. Make that stand. Make that decision. And give him each decision that you have. And I've found that it makes the next decision easier. Saying yes is the first part. Um, continue the saying yes is the next would be the first recommendation I would give. Amen. That's, that's a very, very good answer. You know, not only does what DeCasper said apply to the Christian life, we see it applying in, in almost every other area of life as well. When you are being trained to interact under a stressful situation, whatever it may be in the medical field, whatever, um, you know, if you're a musician, 
you learn to do what you do over and over and over again to where it's second nature. You know, I play violin, and I'm not an expert by any means of violin, but I enjoy it. And when I first started playing, I had to, you know, really think about playing. I had to look at my fingers, you know, all that stuff. But now, I don't even have to think about playing. I can, like, hold a conversation while I'm playing, although that's kind of hard because you're, like, chin rest is, you know on the violin, um, but the point is it becomes second nature. And so as, as DeCasper was, was sharing, it is the same possibility that we have in our Christian life. We can become so used to and in the habit of surrendering to God and standing for what we know is right that when a intense or trying situation comes, our natural response is to choose the right. Uh, anyone else? I just think the question of how can we stand when no one else is, is the reality is, is we can't. Hmm. I mean, how do, how do any of us become faithful to God on our own? You know, there's absolutely nothing that we possess as humans that gives us moral stamina or the ability to stand up for what's right or to follow God. And I just remember when I was first coming through the experience, you know, I shared with you the decision that my friends and I went forward to, and they went back out smoking a joint in the parking lot. And these are the types of friends that I was surrounded with continually, and these were my, my, my peers. And this is, that was normal life to me. Running mm -hmm. from the police and using drugs was like all that I knew from people. And so when I started thinking, man, I need to surrender my life to God, I thought, where does the support come from? And I, I realized a lesson that I think is really valuable, that my support doesn't come from anyone that I can see. But just like Paul was saying when we were reading through Philippians is that my support to be obedient to the Lord comes from the Lord himself. Hmm. And I can't be faithful to God. I mean, I knew the addictions I was struggling with. I knew the problems that I had in my own life. And I was messed up. And there was no way I was going to stand for right, even if I was surrounded by a thousand others who were doing it. But then when it came to being alone, I realized, man, the only way that I can be faithful to God is pleading with the Lord to do something different. And I would encourage you, if this is a struggle for you, this is where devotions become real. Amen. A lot of times we talk about having a devotional life as though it's a checklist and something to make us holier, or you're like a good Adventist or a bad Adventist if you spend time in the Bible. But oftentimes, how many times do we come to the Bible pleading with the Lord to give us grace and mercy for the day because we realize how messed up we are? Oftentimes, I feel like devotions are just a passive experience to get something done. Hmm. But I remember those times, I would go to the Lord in prayer and just crying almost the entire time, multiple years on end. Not, I mean, I, I would take breaks to eat and stuff like that. But, you know, just, and I had, I had normal life. But it was just like every time when I came to the Lord in prayer, I, I knew that I was so messed up. And I think if we were to seek God like that every day, what difference would be in our lives? And I, I'm thinking back now as it's been 10 years since that experience happened, there, there's this, this complex where we start to become comfortable and think mm -hmm. that we don't need to be as dependent upon God, but I need to be just as dependent upon God today as I was 10 years ago coming out of drug addiction. Amen. And I think the reality is, is if we sought God and we prayed and we studied our Bible like we actually needed it, not like we had to, that we would realize that we're partnering with a God who knows no failure, Amen. that God's never messed up and let anyone down, and that's the greatest support you can ever have in life. Amen. Any other closing thoughts? So with respect to the question on how do you stand if you're the only one? Now, 
I think part of it might have to do with our fundamental understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what your purpose is. Of course, we've already talked about the fact that um, our strength doesn't come from humans and shouldn't come from humans. The humans that do strengthen us and help us should be pointing us back to the Bible and pointing us ultimately back to God. But even aside from that, um, what are we told to do? Of course, pray and read our Bible. But there's one other thing, and that's to witness. And if we find ourselves as the only one, instead of feeling discouraged, no one's here to help me, no one's here to support me, realize, yes, there is, it's God, and I have a job to do to Amen. reach these other people if I'm the Amen. only one. Because if we start thinking of ourselves more along the lines of I'm a missionary, I'm reaching out to these people, I'm helping these people, I'm here to offer them something as opposed to I'm going to piggyback on their spiritual ride, then it changes the perspective completely. We're no longer the people that are, oh, Doug Bachelor's here, I'm going to leech my spiritual life off of his powerful sermons or something. It's... <laughs> I'm surrounded by a bunch of students that still don't know God, and I'm going to use whatever resources I have, whether it be powerful preachers like Doug Batchelor, or whether it be nothing but my Bible and an opportunity to pray to God, whatever it may be, I'm going to use that to reach other people, not I'm going to expect for other people to continuously give things to me. Because God has given us the power, God has given us the strength. We have so many Bible promises where God says that he'll be with us. And it's about time that we take our faith over our feelings. Amen. It has nothing to do with what we feel. It has nothing to do with um, what it seems like based on our emotional situation. It has everything to do with what God has promised to us, what God is doing for us and through us and offers to do through us to reach the people around us. So I think that that's kind of something that we may have lost over time in the Adventist church. It used to be, if you were the only one, it was a blessing because it's like, look at all these people I can reach. Look at all these people I can teach. Look at all these people that are going to be so excited when they hear the truth. Hmm. Now we say, oh, there's no one here to support me. I don't have a powerful preacher. I don't have a local church I can go to. I don't have whatever. And then we drop off the radar. We stop going to church. We stop being Adventists just because no one's there to hold us up. When in reality, if we're the only one, it's our job to hold others up. You know, um, I'll come to you in just a moment. I think it's, it's very interesting. I see there's like two pitfalls that we often fall into when we feel like we're the only one. And one is that we are trying to find someone to leech spirituality off of. The other pitfall is to start thinking, okay, I'm the only one who's spiritual here. I need to start building like boundaries around myself to isolate myself from the evil that I might bump into if I contacted other people. And we become very like, I don't know, almost we think of ourselves as victims and preserving ourselves more than actually going out there and, and being a blessing to others. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there are things we can do to prevent, you know, coming into excess contact with evil, as it were. But it's very important when you feel like you're the only one or one of the few in, a, in an environment or an area to recognize God has placed you there, as Kyle said, to be a missionary and to reach other people. I was just reminded of the story of Elijah. Like the whole reason, mm -hmm. we're literally told that had he stood his ground whenever he heard of the death threat of Jezebel, the second one, when he ran, that Jezebel would have been judged, that Ahab would have been converted, and the nation would have been brought to reform. And he made the wrong choice. But the amazing thing is how God dealt with him in the midst of that failure. He chased him down. He asked him, what are you doing here? I still need you. The nation still needs you. Go back. 
And the commentary given in, pro, in chapter, pro, chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Prophets and Kings, she says in chapter 13 that many of us drop out of the work because of two main reasons, worldly ease or um, opposition, difficulty. And she says the angels have been commissioned to go before us, and where angels go, none need fear to move forward. And I think that's something that we lose sight of a lot, that we, you know, even when I talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, Understanding our power source is incredibly important in this situation. God isn't asking us to do something that we can't do. He's asking us to lean upon one who cannot fail. And when we do lean upon God in those situations, what's found by the people around us is that Jesus is actually standing with us. And that's the story that you see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is that there weren't three people in the fire, there were four. And when they chose to stand by the strength given them by God— God got glory out of it. God was seen in it, and more people came. You may be amazed that you being the only person could actually do more for the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom than you having 50 people with you to do something. Um, Pioneer workers are the ones that see a lot of the miracles because all they have is God. And sometimes that's actually the best place to be. It doesn't seem like it, but it actually can be in the eyes of God. Amen. Well, thank you each and every one of uh, those of you who served on the panel and each of you who were here this morning. It was a blessing. I know I was inspired and enriched. I want to remind you that this afternoon we're going to be meeting at 2.30 over in the Collegedale Church to hear Doug Batchelor speak again. Then at 4.15 we'll be having our breakout sessions and then 6.30 um, back in the, the main chapel for Pastor Batchelor. Thank you all so much. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that this morning you've given us an opportunity to not only dig into your word, but to converse about how it's applied to our lives, to make it practical, to understand how we can live lives dedicated and committed to you in a world that seems to draw us away from you. I pray that you will give us the strength to stand, even if we feel like the, we are the only one or if we feel like you know, there are very few around us who, who really hold to the same truth that we do. And I pray most of all, Father, that you will make us missionaries wherever and whenever you find us ready to use. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.